Good morning and happy Father's Day. We are so excited to have you. In just a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Commissioner Bard, who is the Cambridge Police Commissioner. We're really, really excited to have him join uh, on, our, on this Father's Day uh, conversation. But before we do that, I wanna just give a brief word uh, about fatherhood and then we'll have that conversation begin. Let's pray first. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you, to seek your face, to trust you. We thank you for leadership. We thank you for fatherhood. We thank you for all the fathers who are listening, who are represented. We even thank you for the fathers who are no longer with us, who have planted a seed in us that helped us be who we are today. Bless this word, encourage your people through it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans 8 and 15 reads as such, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. I want to talk for a few minutes from the subject, three characteristics of a godly father. Of course, there are more than three, but I want to focus on three. One, father as teacher. Two, father as empathizer. And three, father as evolving intercessor. First, father as teacher. One of our major responsibilities as fathers and mothers is to provide instruction. In many ways, we are our children's first teacher. This is not a responsibility that we can abdicate or turn over to others. Proverbs 1 and 8 says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. So, children, those of you who are out there who are children, you have a responsibility here also, and that is to listen to the instruction that is given to you out of love. But back to the fathers. The first classrooms our children's, uh, children attend are in our homes. COVID-19 is forcing us to be reminded of this biblical truth, and it can be a hard lesson. Of late, I have heard parents say how much they appreciate their children's teachers these days. If you're one of those parents, give a thumbs up on the chat so we can get, give a shout out to all the teachers and educators out there. But my point is that fathers, we are our children's first teachers. This does not mean that you must be an expert in academic disciplines, but rather we teach through our example. We teach in how we love our wives. We teach in how we honor our parents. We teach in how we do our jobs. We teach in how we pray. We teach in how we apologize. We teach in how we discipline. And reflecting on how I tried to teach my sons along with my wife, I thought of three Bs, Bible, books, and balls. The Bible represented a living, represented living a life that was devoted to God. Matthew 6.33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We wanted Irvin, Leon, and Nicholas to understand that without God, life was impossible. The second B, books. The love of learning and schooling is important to Keisha and me. So we taught the boys to love reading and learning. One of my fondest memories as they were growing up was reading to them at night or reading books together as a family. The Chronicles of Narnia books series is one of the ones that we loved together as a family and we read together as a family. I would even make up stories and tell them when they were young. When you see one of, your, when you see one of our sons, ask them about the fictional characters, Thumbelina and Thumpster. The third B, is balls. Like my father and brothers, I loved sports growing up. As a young black male, it was one of the rare positive images of black males that I saw on TV. Sports opened doors for me 
in school, in college, in leadership. So when I had sons, I taught them what I knew and what I loved, which was sports. They would go on to be much better than I was when I was their age, but I worked hard to win as many times as I could when they were young. When I think back on the three Bs, Bible, books, and balls, I am struck by how much they mirror how my father raised me and my five siblings. My father, Bishop Edgar L. Scott, is a man of the word. He was a great athlete, and he had very strict rules about what grades we could bring home and not bring home. This is a reminder to us fathers that the way we raise our children is often how they will raise our grandchildren. The second characteristic is father as empathizer. I will never forget the day that I saw with my own eyes, my oldest son, Irvin, experience racial prejudice or implicit bias. He and I were spending a week in Seattle, Washington while I worked out there. We had gone out for dinner and were returning to our hotel in downtown Seattle. We walked to the elevator and waited for an elevator to arrive so we could go up to our room. When the elevator arrived, two men were on it. One was preparing to leave as the other went back up to his room. When the one who was preparing to leave the elevator looked up and saw Irvin and I, rather than leave, he got back on and said to his buddy, I will go up with you. Irvin and I got on the elevator. All four of us rode up the elevator, silent. When our floor came, Irvin and I got off and we proceeded to our room. When we got into the room, Irvin was angry. He was livid, and he expressed it very vividly and emotionally. I believe he hit a few things. He and I just witnessed implicit bias or racism. It was subtle, but it was there. I was so struck by Irvin's reaction that I thought to myself, perhaps if I go back down the elevator, I will be able to catch the one man who was going to be coming back down the elevator in order to leave. So I left Irvin, went back downstairs, and sure enough, the man was coming off the elevator. Glory to God. I went over to him and confronted him as godly as I could. I'm not sure I knew it at the time, but I was empathizing with my son. I was feeling his pain. I'm a black man, and he is also. And is all, also our three sons are black men. And I am used to experiencing racial bias or racism. And despite the fact that I am a child of God and a minister of the gospel, that hurts. Racism hurts. It hurts even more when you see it happen to your seed, your son. Whether I knew it or not, I was trying my best to take on the pain that Urban was feeling. Hebrews 4 and 15 says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In God the Father, we find our calling as empathizers, fathers. Fathers, like Christ, we are called to be compassionate, to not only experience the joys of our children, but their pain and suffering also. The story of Irvin and I on the elevator has a happier ending than, more, than most racial bias and racist experiences. As I, expressed Irvin and, as I expressed Irvin and my collective anger to the man by the elevator, he interrupted me 
and asked me for my cell phone number. I kid you not. I gave it to him. He asked, can I take you and your son out for dinner tomorrow night? I asked, are you paying? He said, yes. And we spent the evening enjoying a meal and talking. The third and final characteristic is father as intercessor. Paul says in Romans 8, 26, verse 8, verses 26 and 34, likewise, the spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, it is, writ it is written again, who is even at the right hand of God, who maketh intercession for us. Fathers, this is the last one. One of the greatest things we can give to our children is our prayers, our intercession. And our prayers and intercession must evolve. It must be fresh. It cannot, stay. It cannot be stale. The word intercession comes from the Latin word intercessio, which according to one definition means to veto the activity of, of another magistrate or of equal or lesser authority. Fathers, if God is the authority in, our, in your life, then he's the authority in your home. The lesser authority, in our case, fathers, is the enemy. So our intercession or intercessio or prayers veto the authority of the enemy against our children, our wife, our families. Amen. In preparation for this message, the Lord spoke to me and asked me, to check the prayers that I have been praying for my children. I realized that they were not evolving. My intercessions were too general. God spoke into my spirit and said, your prayers have to evolve. You cannot pray for your adult children the way that you prayed for your adolescent children. We cannot pray for our adolescent child the way we prayed for our elementary age child. True intercession requires specific tailor-made prayers and these prayers require knowing our children and being led by God and how to pray for them. Earlier, I talked about the three Bs, Bible, books, and balls. I want to end with a fourth B, and that is blessings. A few weeks back, Bishop Green shared a blessing that his father prayed over him. In that same spirit, I want to remind us of the importance of blessing our children. If you have not blessed your children lately, take some time to pray over them and bless them. There is nothing like the blessing of our Father. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for reminding us of the importance of those characteristics of teaching, of being an intercessor, of empathizing on behalf of our families, our wife, our children, and Father, we thank you because this is the example that you gave us. As we reach for you and as you reach for us, we pray that we will exhibit these characteristics also as our children reach for us. I have the image of our children when they were young reaching for us. In many ways, that's us reaching for you. And we believe, Father, as we reach for you, you will teach us how to respond and answer our children, our loved ones during this Father day, Father's Day and beyond. 
Father, we thank you for the conversation that we're preparing to have with another father, Commissioner Bard, who also has an enormous responsibility as he leads the Cambridge Police Department, not only on this Father's Day, but beyond, especially during very difficult times. We thank you for his leadership. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so thank you. I am super excited to have Commissioner Bard join us um, today. He was so um, open and welcomed the opportunity to join us for this conversation. I think it's particularly important because it's Father's Day, um, but obviously very important because of all that's going on in the news. Um, so on behalf of Bishop Brian Green, pastor here, Lady Carmen Green, um, we want to welcome Commissioner Bard. And in the chat, everybody just give him a shout out, welcome him um, for joining us today. Thank you, Commissioner Bard, for joining us. Thank you, Doc. Thank you, Dr. Scott. Uh, thanks, Bishop Green and the whole PT family for inviting me. Awesome, awesome. So um, we're going to just jump into the conversation. I gave him a heads up. Our goal is to talk, to be really honest, just start off with fatherhood. He's a father. Um, sometimes we forget that people are in these, these uh, high-profile positions. We forget the humanity in them, but he is a father. We'll talk a little bit about fatherhood, and then we'll transition to talking about his role um, as commissioner um, and especially given some of the challenges that are going on during this time. Um, uh, Commissioner, why don't we just start off but by just talking a little bit about fatherhood. Give us a little uh, update or sort of overview of you as a father. And you can talk about your father also, if you like. Okay, so uh, I'm married with three children. Um, this is my second marriage, so my children span the uh, wider group of ages. My oldest daughter is 31 years old, Nikisha. She lives in Philadelphia. My middle child is Brandon. He's 23 years old, and he also lives in Philadelphia. And my youngest lives with me and my wife, Alicia. She's 10 years old here, and we live here in Cambridge. Wonderful. Did you say your one daughter's name is Lakeisha? Nakisha. Nakisha, because my yes. wife's name is Lakeisha. I was like, another Lakeisha. Yes. Um, so what do you, if someone were to ask you, what do you enjoy most about being a father? How would you answer that question? Uh, uh, so much. I think, you know, love of family is one of those universals, mm. Catholic, Protestant, center, saint, you know, Very everyone true. has that love for family. Um, uh, you touched on something uh, that was real keen, meaning that, you know, I'm a police commissioner, a police officer, but I'm also a black man and a father of yeah. black children. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I have to live in all of those intersections and, and uh, you know, my 23-year-old son is not immune to uh, some of the ills mm. that, you know, society and law enforcement face. You know, I, I want to build on that. Um, so you've heard of the talk, of course, that parents, black parents have had to have with particularly their sons, but increasingly their daughters also. Um, have you had that talk with your son? Um, and what did that look like, especially given the fact, I, I should have said that, uh, uh, the commissioner has been in law, law enforcement for 28 years. He started off in Philadelphia, and now he's in Cambridge, but he's, he's known law enforcement for a long period of time. But that, son, that conversation with your son. 
Yeah, so my first introduction to law enforcement uh, wasn't a pleasant one. Growing up in the streets of Philadelphia back in the 70s, you know, the police department was a bit rough mm. back then and characterized and known for being a bit rough. So, um, you know, naturally I have those. I can't help but think that those interactions help shape my worldview, mm. you know, even today. Mm -hmm. So obviously I've had that discussion with my son who, uh, you know, found himself alone uh, at a, you know, college. And I remember not that very long ago, um, well, probably a year or so ago now, a little more than a year ago, he had an interaction with university police and he called me and he was upset. And I'm like, well, what happened? And the crux of it was nothing really happened because he blurted out real early in the interaction that his father was the chief of police and then some confusion he said in Philadelphia. Mm. But the whole fact that his father was in policing, the officers just said, well, we're just gonna leave you and let, set you on your way. Wow. So um, it was one of those things where he was, he called me, he was definitely upset about the interaction and, and some words or some names that the officers used prior to him blurting out that his father was um, a high ranking law enforcement official. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it leaves you, you know, like, like yeah, <laughs> like the, the account you had with uh, your son Irving. Um, yeah. It leaves you wanting to do more or do something yeah. for them. And, you know, in this case, uh, not sure that anything got a chance to occur, but he definitely felt injured by, yeah. the, by the interaction. Yeah. What would you say to, um, just building on that, what would you say to people? So I've had this conversation with a lot of people who are not black about the talk that we have to have with our children who are black. Um, what would you say to those who aren't black who don't have to have this conversation? Because there are a lot of them who are watching right now. So I, I think that I've been around, around a lot of people in my career who empathize. Uh, but um, it's something that they could, in my view, never truly understand. Like there'll always be a certain tone deafness and there's not a, a hearing aid capable of being, you know, ramped up loud enough to bring it into their, their field of audibleness. Like mm -hmm. uh, they, you, you can empathize, but you can never truly understand mm -hmm. what it is to be in that position. Mm -hmm. And um, I appreciate folks who want to, you know, uh, well-meaning folks who want to help fight against uh, the injustices and the need for us to have to have that conversations mm -hmm. with our children. But um, there, in, at some level, you can never truly understand. Yeah, but you do, I hear you saying, you do appreciate their advocacy, even if they can't understand. Trying to advocate on behalf of people who have this experience, you appreciate. Oh, oh, I absolutely do. But in, you know, at some level, it's like me telling my wife, well, no, I know exactly what it was. To be what it felt like to watch you go through childbirth. Yeah, it's a good example. We're never gonna know oh, that. I empathize. Yeah, that's, and that's one of the things we talked about earlier, the importance of uh, uh, empathy with fatherhood. So one of the things, thank you for that conversation around uh, father. Let me ask you this, just before we wrap up the conversation around fatherhood, any pointers, having been an, ex you were an experienced father, any pointers you would give to those fathers who are watching, black, white, whatever? Yes, um, make sure that your children understand and that your loved ones understand that the system's not set up for you to get a win right then and there in the street. Mm. Document everything. 
if you need to call for a higher authority or supervisor, mm -hmm. but the system is not set up for you to get a win right there in the uh, street. And you don't want to do anything to uh, minimize the voice that you have yeah. when you seek uh, remedy. Good wisdom. Good wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. One of the things that we did, um, PT family, is we asked for questions from uh, children or young people in the church um, because we try to engage, this church does a phenomenal job of trying to engage um, children and youth, adolescents. Um, and so we got three questions from uh, young people in PT. And I'm going to ask all three of those questions and then we'll segue to some other questions. Um, but this one comes from Betty Ako, um, and he, he has this question for you, Commissioner. What would you have done if you were there at the scene of the George Floyd murder? How would you have handled it differently? And I'm assuming that he's suggesting, obviously, you're not the one who uh, committed the murder, but you're, you're a police officer, and you're observing. So... Uh the, the murder of Mr. Floyd was just so heinous and so depraved. I, I, I mean, it, it hurts you to watch it and to, to watch it over and over again. If I'm there, we're not sitting here talking about a murder of Mr. Floyd yeah. because I'm, I'm intervening. I'm stopping that. that. There's no way that you feel comfortable enough to do something like that in front of me. Hmm. So um, I, I hate that I wasn't there, and I hate that the officers there didn't do the right thing from the officer, who I'm not even going to say his name, who committed the heinous act to the officers who stood by and watched him mm. commit the act. But if I was there, there's no way that that is allowed to proceed yeah. and allowed to go on. Can I ask you, why do you think no one there did what you did? If people ask about a culture within policing, and there's probably nothing that says you can't intervene, but what's your sense of why there isn't more intervention. Or maybe there is intervention, we just don't see it. So I've, I've seen intervention in my career. Okay. Um, uh, even if it's just to uh, verbal uh, indiscretions from an officer, I've seen officers step in and intervene. I, I, I can't explain why an individual would not intervene there. I, 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 I understand that there's a certain culture and there's a certain fear uh, as to countering that culture, but I mean, that's humanity. Mm. So to, to not to intervene and to not to uh, have the courage to step in is to lose your humanity to mm. me. And, that, uh, and I, I, I make no excuses for anybody mm. who, who doesn't intervene. Yeah. Me. Thank you. Um, here's a second question. Um, and this question comes from Madeline. Um, and she asked it very, she asked, I, I'm not sure what her age, but she asked this question very, Bluntly, um, she says, why do you think I'm scared of you? And I think when she says you, she's talking. Oh, I, I get it. Gotcha. And that's, that's a mistake that a lot of us make when yeah. someone uh, points a finger at the profession, we internalize it, and that's get indignant when we, when we should be getting introspective. Mm, that's a good point. So, no, I do understand. I, I, um, <laughs> I, I grew up being fearful of police officers mm. um, because they were... Um, abusive, however you want to say it, mm. but physically abusive, yeah, I, I, I understand that. I also understand intergenerational trauma. I understand that this profession is undergirded by racism. Mm. I understand that it has a dark past where um, 
the profession has been used to oppress minorities where through disproportionate minority context, we've destabilized entire communities by removing an important segment of it, black men from yeah. the community wow. at a disproportionate rate. So I, I understand uh, all of those things. Mm -hmm. So I, I get it. Yeah. I, I think that's really powerful what you, first of all, you talked about inter, intergenerational uh, context. Um, so Madeline's question you got right away wasn't about you, wasn't about a specific officer. It was about a representation of that, people. That's correct. My, my department, um, we were the only department in the country to undergo the, a training put on by the, I, I got to slow down when I say it, the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Product, okay. Project mm -hmm. and the uh, Institute on Race and Justice and George Ruffin Society at Northeastern University. And what it is, is that it, talks about and get, helps police officers gain an understanding of police, racial police violence, mm. the historical side. So wow. turning over a black man to an angry white mob to um, police participating in lynchings. Right. And um, so that, you know, it can help us understand and inform our, our understandings as we move forward. Um, like, you know, that how some communities that intergenerational trauma is still real and still yeah. as visceral as if, you know, that lynching or, or so yeah. just occurred because it's been, you know, that thousand cuts, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. throughout, you know, history. So it was, it was, I can tell you that right now it was, it was difficult for some of us mm -hmm. to go through, but it's necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, uh, you know, penned a letter of support because I think that every police department should have to go through that and gain that level of understanding yeah. as to, the historical racial violence that this profession participated in. That's powerful. And uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, that is not something that departments are required to do. No, we, we were the only department to, to uh, have the blessing of having that training. And now it'll, I'm sure it'll become more widespread. Wow. How long ago was that? Was it was this year. This year? Yes. Okay. So, uh, um, that training, this is just a plug for people out there because we have people who are in communities all over Massachusetts. As a matter of fact, we have people who are watching who are probably not even in Massachusetts. You might be in Pennsylvania or Nebraska or whatever. But the training that uh, the commissioner just talked about, which talks about the history of the connection of police and racism, sounds like a training that a lot more police officers should be a part of and departments should be a part of. Um, if you don't mind, say one more time. I know it was long, yeah. but I want everyone to get, because you, those of you who are in the audience, you are in a position to act and ask for things for your police department. So that training again? So it's Historical Injustices and Present Policing Project. And it's a combination of the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice uh, Center and the Institute in Race and Justice and the George Ruffin Society all three housed out of Northeastern University. Awesome. Commissioner Bard took his department through that training. More departments need to go through that training is, that, is what I, I think and what I'm hoping and praying will happen and you can potentially do something about that. Um, our next question comes for, from Lydia. What reforms has the Cambridge, and this might build on what we just talked about, what reforms has the Cambridge Police Department made recently with respect to racism and people of color uh, that other cities may not have done? 
Um, so that training yeah. was one of them. So this department is unique um, in as much as it, about a decade ago, it made a, a pronounced switch from being a department that, that was legal-centric, meaning that it gathered its authority through statutes and ordinances mm -hmm. to one, a community policing philosophy where it gathers its authority from the community in the form of legitimacy. Mm -hmm. So that meant looking at all of the use of force policies and making sure that they were as humane and as hum humanistic as possible. Yeah. So um, more about a decade ago, we banned knee, knee holds, knees on neck, ch uh, choke holds. That's been banned uh, in this, this department? In this department, choke holds have been banned. Um, we already required that the officer only use the least amount of force necessary mm. during all situations, mm -hmm. um, and that you exhaust certain steps before using deadly force. The, um, the murder of Mr. Floyd gave rise, gave momentum to a reform, a right. police use of, use of force reform called Eight Can't Wait, and it's purported to be eight policies and eight measures that if you have them in place, you're likely to, it purports that it will reduce uh, minority deaths by 72 percent mm. and we had we we had nearly all eight of those things already uh, already done the the minor distinction was that there was a duty to intervene as one of the pillars one of the principles and our policy said what would happen if an officer didn't intervene that they would be civilly and criminally liable um, but it did not say that you had the duty to intervene mm. um, a little caveat there is that since 2016 and our use of force pro, uh, annual training, we did actually say, don't stand there, don't leave, do something. Do something. So, and you have the responsibility to do something. But I formally codified it into a general order gotcha. um, shortly after the murder of Mr. Floyd. Great. So a lot of the eight can't wait. I heard that during this time. A lot of them you had, Cambridge had implemented. I would say we had seven and three quarters of it. That's great. We just moved that. I don't know why the policy walked up to the line. But I honestly, when I first read all eight principles, I said, oh, we do all of those things. Oh, that's things. great. That's great. And it's in writing. Oh, yes. Excellent. Um, just building on that, you talked about eight can't wait. Oh, that's being pushed across the country. Um, and there's a lot that's happened as a result of George Floyd. And then, of course, what, what just happened in Atlanta. Um, I hear a lot. I hear this a lot about this time seems different. I remember Rodney King. I remember Ferguson. I don't think I remember all. Does this time seem different to you, Commissioner? So, so Dr. Scott, I'm a student of history, and 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 just to piggyback off of what you were saying, I'm gonna start off by saying I hope so. Okay. I hope so, but um, you know, I did an op-ed and I talked about how 1968 we got this report, this Kerner Commission report that was the result of civil unrest and it talked about what we need to do to address it. Mm -hmm. Did very few things to address it. Um, fast forward to the Rodney King incident, mm -hmm. fast forward to Ferguson. Mm -hmm. um, got another commission's report, 21st Century Task Force on Policing, and it makes these recommendations, similar to the current report almost 50 years prior. Mm. And several of them get implemented, then it loses steam. Um, and then under this current administration, it, you know, any teeth that it had and any opportunity it had to be implemented. So I say all that to say is that we've seen history repeat itself. We've seen these things happen and it seems like it's different. It seems like it's uh, mm -hmm. different this time. And I hope that it is. I hope that um, without detracting from their message that folks 
continue to be vocal. And we know that over time it'll dwindle, but those folks need to still be peaceful. They still need to be loud and they still mm -hmm. need to continually call people like me on the carpet and they're elected on the carpet on the to carpet. make sure that change actually happens. Um, we've seen a few things happen this time around that, that are uh, give you more hope. Can you say a couple of those that you feel like the, are a little different from previous? One of them, uh, departments making sure that they adhere to the Aided. they can't wait principles. Another thing is so many police chiefs, union officials immediately spoke out and denounced yeah. the behavior. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's promising mm -hmm. because to me, although the calls for reform has to be external, or the pressure is external, the reform has to be law enforcement led. Absolutely. You know, I liken it to the civil rights movement. Uh, civil rights legislation didn't pass because black people wanted to pass. Mm. Civil rights legislation passed because well-meaning people of all colors of all and all races wanted it passed, but particularly the dominant culture, Caucasian people. Yeah. So for this to have a meaningful reform passed, you need it to be led by law enforcement. And, but you gotta make sure that the pressure yeah. stays on. You mentioned something, um, I had a question, I think you alluded to it, around the role of well-meaning uh, white people. Um, and you talked real quick about uh, the civil rights movement. And what I'm hearing you say in that is that this is something that we all need to be a part of. This is not just a cause. And I, I've been somewhat encouraged by what we see, at least in protests, um, what's your take on that in terms of people who are not people of color taking more of a visible role in advocating for change? So um, it's necessary. You can't have the change without everybody getting in there and making sure their voice is heard. Um, one of the things that I want to ensure that is done is that you actually know, you actually make effort to ask what meaningful change looks like and not assume gotcha. that you know what meaningful change gotcha. looks like. Gotcha. So that means uh, involving the folks who are most affected mm -hmm. by it and most impacted by the status quo and what change needs to look like for them. You can't just assume that you know. You gotta get in there yeah. and ask. Yeah. And that's, that's all that I would encourage folks to do. Yeah. And then when you ask for something, make sure that that's actually What's impacting and helping mm -hmm. the folks who you seek to protect yeah. by implementing. Yeah. So a lot of energy happening right now, multicultural energy. You're saying make sure it's informed by the people who are closest to the challenge. Make sure it's thoughtful, thoughtful. Not, not knee-jerk, and then that it's going to actually help to change us, the system. Awesome. Okay, thank you. So my final question, we are a church, and there are many churches, obviously, in Cambridge. There are many churches in all of the uh, communities where there are police officers and where there are police what do talk a little bit about the role of the church during this time or the role of the church as it relates to the work that you do um, as a police commissioner police and uh, that police do so i know that in, in my experience in philadelphia and some challenging communities um and cambridge the same that we can't nothing we can do to drive down crime without having those serious community ties. Yeah. And I find that like crime dropping is actually a side effect or you know positively correlated to the strength of the community ties. Yeah. Mm. So you 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 get those get in there and get those community ties with the the activists 
and the, the churches, the, the black churches. Mm. And as a benefit of that, you'll see, you know, as you increase police engagement, you'll see community engagement rise. Right. And, uh, you know, that impacts everything. Yeah. It impacts everything. Yeah. And, you know, for me, with the police officers, um, uh, I've been, I've taken over several places where it was this siege mentality where the community didn't trust the police. The police didn't trust the community. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I get out there, boots on the ground, and show them how to interact with yeah. the community. And most folks, most of my officers see that and willingly come along. There are a few who remain stubborn, and then you just speak practically to them. You show them the benefits yeah. of having that strong, those strong community ties. Um, I remember one officer was complaining, we get the worst equipment. We get the worst, you know, can we say something to city council? I said, you could talk to city council till you blew in the face, mm. but it ain't going to mean nothing until they talk to city council. The people. Exactly. And mm. I said, and guess what? They ain't going to do it unless you're worthy of it. That's and you got to continually show them that you're worthy of it. And we, I don't like to say single-handedly, but single-handedly turned that relationship to one of the strongest relationships I've ever seen between the police and community Beautiful. still today, many years later. Yeah. And, you know, when they did say, well, how come? My police don't have this. Next thing you know, we had it. We so had you it. show them the benefits of it. And the benefits are immeasurable. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, Commissioner, thank you so much. Any closing words from you? You you lead the police department here in Cambridge. You've been a police officer all of your life. Um, we really uh, just thank you. You have a lot of respect and great relationship with our pastor, Bishop Brian Green. But we'll give you a closing word before we pray. No, I'll just say thank you again for having me. Thank Bishop Green and thank the whole PT family. I, um, one of the reasons why taking over this department was so attractive to me was because it was so progressive and so reform-minded. Mm -hmm. So I just want you to understand that you have a department that's committed to continually showing you that we're worthy of your respect, mm -hmm. worthy of your trust, and worthy of your, legit le your legitimacy. So um, we're going to continue and moving along that path. And we hope that y'all will continue to show us the strong support that you always have. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you. You are the ultimate father. We thank you for this opportunity to just spend a few minutes bridging the gap between our community of faith, um, the police department, and, and ultimately to you, Lord, because you are the giver of all things, we thank you for being our ultimate father. We, we pray a special prayer over Commissioner Bard and the police officers um, in Cambridge. We say a special prayer for them. Please, Lord, be with them, protect them, give them wisdom, give them knowledge, give them understanding. Bless his leadership, Lord, and help him to be influential not only in this city, but even further beyond. Protect all of your people. Give us grace. And we thank you for being our Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, PT. Thank you, Dr. Irving, for that word. And thank you, for Commissioner Bard, for that conversation. We hope that no matter how Father's Day has been for you, what your experience has been, whether it's a day of sadness or a day of joy, that you could feel during the course of this service our Heavenly Father's arms reaching for you, saying, you belong to me that you are mine and that I am yours. We pray that you receive that blessing. Here at PT, we don't have a closing prayer traditionally. We have a closing blessing. 
So at this time, I want to bless you. Extend your hands out, as is our tradition. May the Lord bless you and protect you. Look after you, shield you, defend you, and take care of you. May the Lord make his face shine, grin, beam, and show his pleasure on you. And may the Lord be gracious, kind-hearted, pleasant, and compassionate to you. May the Lord show you his favor that will promote you, appreciate you, support you, and side with you as you side with him. And finally, may the Lord give you his shalom, his peace, his rest, his harmony, his calmness, his composure, his prosperity, his success. Remove anything that causes agitation or discord with his divine purpose and destiny for your life. I bless you in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody say, I receive that blessing. Well, thank you, PT, and have a wonderful Father's Day.